Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of Two Days in Oregon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter Sixteen, Part Two. What sort of houses had these Indians? The Clickitats had regular lodges. Stick set up in the ground in a circle and tied together at the top, and covered all over with rush mats they used to make. Good workers they were, too, They and the Calapuyas fell out once. I mind very well one day the Clickitats came running into our camp to say there was ever such a lot of Calapuyas coming in to attack them. They sent off their women and children to the hills and, and drove all their horses down to our camp. <laughs> Strange, wasn't it? They should think their stock safe with five or six white men. There must have been several hundred of those Calapuyas. Did the fight come off? Not that time. They made it up with some presents of horses and beads and things. What became of those Clickitats? Uh, all that's left them are gone to the reservation away north on the Columbia. They had their big fight with the Calapuyas down there by the Mary River Bridge, out by Wren's schoolhouse, just before we came into the country. The Calapuyas were too many for them, for they were, I should say, three to one. That was quite a battle, I should say. But here comes one of the early settlers. Uh, why don't you ask him about it? Just then the door had been opened, and in came a slender, gray-haired minister with black coat and a white collar and tie. So you were an early settler? Yes, and I had some experiences in early days. <laughs> Did you ever hear of our Presbyterian colony? I think not. Well, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, and I had just finished my theological course and got married. I had heard a good deal about Oregon and took the notion of getting some Presbyterians to go out there. This was in 1851, when the law had been passed giving half a section of land to every settler, and half another section for his wife if he had one. How did you set about getting Presbyterians together? I just put an advertisement in the Pennsylvania papers that a Presbyterian minister intended starting for Oregon in the spring of 1852 and would be glad for any Presbyterians to join him and found a colony there. Uh, did you get many answers? Eh, about eighty agreed to go, but a good many weakened before the time came, and only about forty of them started. Some twenty came in afterwards, so that our party was uh, sixty strong. When we left St. Joe in Missouri, uh, we had twenty wagons. I had a nice carriage with four mules for my wife, and a half share in a wagon and ox team. We left uh, St. Joe in May 1852, and arrived in Oregon four months and a half afterward. Did you travel all that time? We laid over for Sundays, and I preached every Sunday on the journey but one, when we were crossing an alkali desert and had to push on through to water. Were there many immigrants on the road, Minister? There was the heaviest immigration to Oregon that year that there ever has been. Many times I've climbed a hill just off the Great Immigrant Trail and counted a hundred wagons and more ahead and more than a hundred behind us. Did you carry any feed for your stock? Not any, and it was terribly hard on stock, as the bunch grass on and near the trail was eaten down so close. It was harder on the oxen than on the mules. I brought all my mules safe to Oregon, but only one ox out of our team. 
How did you do when the oxen gave out? Oh, a man just cut his wagon in half and, and hitched what oxen he had left onto the front half and left the hinder end there in the desert. Did you have any trouble with the Indians? None at all. All quiet and peaceable. We came to Oregon by way of Boise City, Idaho, and Umatilla and the Dalles. The last sixty miles my wife and I walked nearly all the way, for the mules gave out crossing the Cascades, and we drove them before us into this valley. The first milk and butter was at Foster's near Oregon City. But one old lady in the crowd wouldn't eat the butter her son had brought for her. She said it tasted too strong of silver. Where did you settle down? Uh, about three miles from Corvallis, or Marysville, as it was called then. Just twelve houses in the place, and two of them stores. What did you do for a house? Just set two and built one. I built it round my wife as she camped in the middle. I cut me down a big fir tree and split it out into boards and shingles. What was this valley like then? All open prairie. A man could drive seventy miles without stopping, from Salem to Eugene. All this oak brush has grown up since. What became of your Presbyterians? Well, we organized the church the next fall in 1853, with just seven of the sixty persons who had left the East with me the year before. So you see, we have grown a good deal in these seven and twenty years. Here the minister got up and left the circle. So he turned to a brown-coated, cheery fellow at the next armchair. You came round the horn, didn't you, Bush? But the cake of tobacco had to be got out of a deep pocket, and a pipe full slowly cut off, and the fresh pipe started, before the answer came. And then a great laugh had to expend its force over the merry memories called up by the question. We had a pretty rough time of it, hadn't we, boys? And a low murmur of assent ran round, all eyes turned meditatively to the stove. Presently the answer to the first question dropped casually out. Yes, I came round the horn. I had been whaling in the Pacific and stopped at Frisco. We were all mad for the diggings. One day, as I was strolling around, I saw a great big placard on the wall, in letters two feet long. Ho! Oh, for the Umqua diggings! Lots of gold! Plenty of water! Good grub! Fine country! The well-known schooler Reindeer, Captain Bachelor, were sailed for the Umqua October the 15th, 1850. There were four of us in my party, all young and active then, and we made up our minds to go, and we weren't long about deciding either. We were up to roughing it, too. You see, a few years in a whaler will fit you for most anything. What was the voyage like? Rough. <laughs> there were about 130 on board the schooner, some for the Umqua, the rest going on to Portland. After knocking about at sea for a few days, we made the Umqua and stood in. The old man anchored just under the north beach. As I put my hand on the cable, it was like a bar of iron, and I felt the anchor drag. I told the mate, and he went and called the captain. Up came the old man, and wouldn't believe it at first, but in another minute we should have all been in the breakers, and nothing could have saved us. Just then a little boat came past, and they hollered out, "'You be on the beach inside of three minutes!' I tell you it was touch and go. How did you get off, Bush? The old man shouted to set all sail, and I ran to the helm. I could see the channel pretty well, and I just steered her by the look of the water. We just shaved a big rock by three feet or so, and ran up the river. 
Presently we anchored again and landed. Then we got a little Indian canoe and pulled on up the river. What was the country like? Pretty rough. But the diggings bush? Bless you, <laughs> there weren't any. It was all a plant. Didn't you go back to the coast? No, sir. We were in for it, and we calculated to see it out. The country there in southern Oregon pleased us mightily. It looked so fresh and green in the valleys, but the mountains were no joke. Then we heard of this Willamette Valley and traveled on north to find it. Two of my mates stayed down there on Rogue River for the winter, but one came on north with me. Any adventures, Bush? Not particular. I mind me, though, when we got up to where Monroe City is now, there was one log house. Old Dodger Richardson lived there. As we came to the house, he came out and stood just outside. I tell you, he was a picture. What like, Bush? Well, he was a great big stout fellow, about fifty, with a jolly red face. He had on a buckskin hunting shirt with long fringes and long buckskin leggings, and his old rifle lay ready in the hollow of his arm. When we stepped up to him, Well, young men, and what do you want? says he. We should like to stop here and get some dinner, says I. What a beautiful place you have got here, sir. I went on, and if you'll allow me to say so, I just admire you for a perfect specimen of a backwoodsman. What? says he. What on earth do you mean, you young thief of a son of a gun? says he, stepping up to me, to lay hold of me by the collar. I tell you, sir, I thought we were in for it, and he was big enough to whip the two of us. As good luck would have it, the door opened just then, and the old lady stepped out. She just looked, and then she spoke up. Old man, says she, just let me speak to these young men. So she came and asked for our names and where we came from, and I explained to her that I had no intention of insulting the old gentleman. Oh, well, says she, don't mind him. And now what can I do for you? You seem nice, quiet young men. So she gave us some bread and milk, and the end of it was they wanted us to stay all winter with them. So the lady helped you out, as usual, Bush? They didn't help me out always. For the next place we came was the Star Settlement. There were a lot of ladies quilting. We went to the house to ask if there were any claims to be hand. Are you married? said one of the ladies. No, ma'am, says I. Oh, well, then, you could just get on. We have plenty of bachelors already. Say, are you a school teacher? says she. I thought for a moment if an old whaleman dared venture at school teaching, but I thought uh, maybe that was a little too strong. No, ma'am, says I, at last, I am not, but my friend here is well qualified. Oh, well, says she, he can stay and take up a claim. We have got one here for three hundred and twenty acres. We have been saving up for the school teacher. But as for you, young man, you can just go on right up the valley. So I had to go on to where Corvallis now stands. There were just four or five log cabins and a little stock. I took up a claim and built me a house, and as I was a pretty good carpenter, I got all the work I wanted. But here comes Uncle Lazarus. Just then the door opened, and a quaint figure entered. Let us sketch him. A broad-brimmed, low-crowned, brown beaver hat, parentheses, 
and when we say broad-brimmed we mean it not a trifling article of fifteen inches or so across but a real sensible sun and rain shade two feet or thereabout from edge to edge and parentheses an old worn blue military greatcoat covered him while a mass of snow-white hair and beard framed a ruddy face as fresh as a winter apple and a pair of bright blue eyes twinkled keenly but with a hidden laugh in them from under the broad brim sit down uncle cried some one and the old man came to an anchor with the rest of us round the stove talking of old times uncle we said you came in pretty early didn't you well i guess it was in eighteen forty six said he in a plaintive slow voice we came over the plains the old lady and i from illinois we had a pretty good ox team and we got through safe did you have any fighting uncle well no there was uh, too many in the company when we started and they did get to quarrelling so i just left them with one or two more and any day you'd rather fight than have a fuss so i thought we'd just take our chance with the engines though they was pretty bad then we were nigh to six months on the road which way did you come to oregon by uh, klamath lake and rogue river the worst piece on the whole journey was at rogue river canyon you know where that is yes uncle came through it at a sharp run on the california stage a month ago <laughs> well there weren't no stage then nor nor road neither <laughs> you know it is about eight miles long and i calculate uh, you might go a quarter of a mile at a time on the bodies of the horses and oxen that had died there no man got through without leaving some of his cattle there tell you sir when you once got into the place and seemed like there was no end to it and you just got to face the music for there weren't no other way how did this country strike you when you got through well the old lady and me just thought lots of it we took up our claims in king's valley you know the place just the nicest kind of place with lots of grass and a nice river you had all the timber you wanted on the mountains close by and just lots of deer and elk pretty lonely though wasn't it well it was kinder lonely but we had lots to do and the time passed very quick the country settled up quick and we had all the neighbors we wanted any trouble with indians uncle no the calipuyas would thieve a bit but fifty of them cusses would just scare from five or six of us settlers with our rifles and the clickatats were good injuns and never troubled us any those were good old times boys and the old man rose to go with a sigh think of the changes the old gentleman has seen for he lives there yet now his white farmhouse with good barn and outbuildings fronts on a well-travelled road leading past many a neighbor's house and to the church and the village the woods on the hillsides have disappeared and the ruled furrows of the wheat fields have replaced the native grass the elk and deer which found him food as well as sport have retired shyly away into the far-off fastness round mary's peak and in the green timber and the fleecy flocks have usurped their place the thievish calipuyas and the good clickatats have lost their tribal connections 
and their shrunken remnants have been shifted away north to the Indian Reserve. As you stand on the hill above his house, and the vision ranges over the gentle outlines of King's Valley, dotted with farms and lined with fences, it is but the noble forms of the distant mountains that could identify the scene with that which he scanned with a wayworn eye as he halted his weary oxen after six months' journey from distant Illinois. End of chapter 16, section 2